I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. The power of Wall Street. Is it a major threat to the economy? Rana Faruhar. The rise of finance has actually eaten the rest of the economy. Finance controls the rest of industry. Finance has become the tail that wags the dog. I also think that we need to fundamentally change how we think about the way banks do business. We need to get back to this idea that banks are a helpmeet to other kinds of businesses. And whatever else they're doing that doesn't have something to do with that, they need to stop doing. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, you know, after the crash of 2007, 2008, everybody thought that the power of Wall Street was going to get reined in. But it seems like Wall Street's bigger than ever. Yeah, Jim, there's one example at current count as we're recording this. Three current and former Goldman Sachs executives are in line for top jobs in the Trump administration. Yeah, filling all the Goldman Sachs guys that are actually in the current administration as well. <laughs> yeah. So our guest today argues that it's all what she calls the financialization of America. The financial industry, she says, has grown too large, leading to lower productivity and greater inequality. Well, who is she? We're in the New York office of journalist and author Rana Faruhar. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks for having me. And you wrote the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. You're also a global economic analyst at CNN. That book has a pretty provocative title, so so make the case. It does. Well, you know, the, 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 the term makers and takers was actually used in the previous election cycle in 2012, um, you know, by Republicans to sort of describe the 47 percent of the population that was not paying uh, federal right. income Romney's tax. famous secret talk exactly. that kind of doomed his, uh, his Exactly, campaign. which seems, you know, incredibly benign now, frankly, by comparison to what we've just <laughs> been through. But but I, I thought a lot about those terms, and I really, as somebody that covers economics, wanted to kind of rebrand them because, you know, I've been covering economics and business for over two decades, and it's it seemed to me that finance, the financial industry in particular, was really the taker out there in the global economy. One of the telling stats in my book is that the financial sector is about 7% of GDP in the U.S., creates 4% of jobs, but takes 25% of all corporate profits. So if you think about 
any industry that has a monopoly hold over the global economy, it is the financial industry. But what's wrong with that number? I mean, okay, so the industry is very profitable. The tech industry is very profitable as well. So is there anything intrinsically wrong with those numbers? I would argue yes. If you go back to Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, and you say, what was the financial system set up to do? Well, he thought that it was set up to help business. And if you go back to the 1970s, not just in the U.S., but in most developed countries, you'll find that, in fact, that's what it was doing. If you look at the flows coming out of the big U.S. banks and financial institutions at that time, you'll see that the majority of them were going to business investment. Here's another telling stat. Today, only 15% of the money flowing out of institutions like J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs actually gets invested in business. So you might ask, what's the rest of it doing? It's going to the trading of existing assets, stocks, bonds, houses. And what this does is it creates a bubble economy. It creates an economy that's basically inflating asset bubbles all the time. The rise of finance has coincided with an exponential rise in the increase of financial crises, which- Right. So if you have a crisis in a manufacturing economy, right. maybe a lot of companies go bankrupt, but the factories are still there. That's and right. somebody else can buy them at a great price and start them up again. You have a crisis in a financial-based economy, and vast amounts of wealth just disappear overnight, and there's nothing left. Well, you know, what's interesting is the rise of finance has actually eaten <laughs> the rest of the economy. Finance controls the rest of industry. Finance has become the tail that wags the dog. And actually, if you look out across, you know, the transportation business, the manufacturing sector, the retail sector, all of these industries now get about five times as much revenue from moving money around as they did in the 1980s. So increasingly, everybody wants to be a banker. It's considered to be the very top of the sort of economic pyramid. So if only 15% of the money that goes into the financial system actually comes back into the real economy, What's happening to the rest of it? Well, uh, let me start by saying my estimate is even um, a little conservative. You know, there are other people like John Kay, for example, who wrote other people's money that say it's more like 3%. But what I'm talking about here is the money being held by U.S. financial institutions that gets invested in business, basically in anything aside from moving money around the closed loop of the financial system itself. So I'm basically counting anything outside of finance as the real economy, which is a pretty broad base, let's face it. And if only 15% of the money is trickling back in, that's that's not a lot. Right, right. You, you tell the story of how Apple has subtly changed in the years since Steve Jobs' death. How did that happen? So if you think about the history of Apple, one of America's great innovators, Steve Jobs, is probably the business icon of our time. But over the last few years, under Tim Cook, the CEO now, Apple has increasingly functioned like a bank. If you look at the way in which they are issuing tons and tons of debt on the U.S. markets at very low interest rates, using that then to pay back shareholders in the form of stock buybacks, dividend payments. They're basically just handing money back to investors. And these are investors that in many cases had nothing to do with the founding of the company. I mean, Apple hasn't actually had to raise money on the public markets to fund its operating costs since the 1990s. Essentially, what it does now is it uses its value to bid up the share price, to enrich the top 20% of the population that owns 80% of all the assets. Meanwhile, and this was an issue in the election, 
Commission, it's holding about $200 billion overseas in bank accounts because it doesn't want to move that money back to the U.S. and pay the corporate tax rate. So, you know, this is just a great example of a financialized economy that creates the kind of populist rage, frankly, that we've seen in the last election cycle and this disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. You also say eight years on from the 2008 financial crisis that the system, the financial system, is as vulnerable as ever. Absolutely. You know, risk is kind of like water. It goes where it can find cracks. And a lot of people will say big banks in the U.S. have deleveraged, things have gotten better. Well, that's true. They've moved a lot of risk off their balance sheets, but that risk has gone to other places. In many cases, it's gone to giant private equity firms, to hedge funds, which are less regulated even than the banks. Crystal ball. Outline how there could be a new crisis. What could happen? Well, the way to think about where the next crisis is going to strike is to look for the debt. Debt is the lifeblood of finance. And so wherever there's debt, uh, there could potentially be a financial crisis. So if you look out there in the global landscape right now, a lot of corporate debt. Corporations have actually a record uh, a record amount of debt. They've been using the low interest rate environment, which is, of course, itself a result of the financial crisis, to issue a lot of debt on the public market. So we already saw last summer um, a little hiccup in the junk bond market. Um, you know, when oil prices plummeted, you saw a lot of energy companies, mining companies, manufacturing companies start to suffer. Those stress points are still out there. China, another big uh, China, <laughs> another China. big uh, China, <laughs> another big, uh, another big place that you might see some ripple effects. They've had a huge debt run up in the last five years. And you mentioned that the very low interest rates right now are themselves an effect of the financial crisis. Explain how the Federal Reserve has driven that over the last years. Yeah, so great irony there. Um, you know, post 2008, as we all know, we had gridlock in Washington. So the Federal Reserve, the big central bank, had to come in and do a major money dump. So they dumped about $4 trillion worth of money into the U.S. economy over the last eight years. Um, by the way, central bankers globally dumped $30 trillion. And, you know, the irony is that's supposed to get Main Street working. Well, what it really does is inflate the stock market. So what you've ended up with is record stock prices and a Main Street that's still growing at relatively lackluster levels by historical standards. Just as a side note, um, I know we're going to talk about solutions in a little while, but I was not one of the people that thought that we should just let the banks go under. I think it was really hard to make an argument that you should have another Great Depression and put people through that much pain in order to not have the moral hazard. Absolutely. But what we didn't do, and this is crucial, what we didn't do, we we then post-crisis should have had a conversation about how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? We did not have that conversation. So you don't think Dodd-Frank, the, uh, the, the massive uh, thousands yeah, of pages yeah, of legislation? 2,300 pages. Uh, yeah. um, well, that right there is a problem, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yes. So yes. you don't think that solved the problem? When a piece of regulation is over 2,000 pages, it's probably not going to fix much. Um, one of the things that happened during Dodd-Frank, it actually shows the power of the financial industry because the industry itself took about you know 90% of the meetings in terms of how this was going to be structured. They were completely in control. They dumped huge amounts of lobbying money onto cutting bits and pieces of it that, that they didn't like out or up into Swiss cheese. And so people, it, what ended up happening is on both sides of the aisle felt like this is actually not going to get us where we need to be. You know, it's funny. I'm, so as the resident cranky libertarian of, ah. 
the, of the, of our, the team here. Love cranky libertarians. But basically, the, the libertarian argument is this is normally what happens when you have heavy regulation. Those interested parties wind up uh, getting totally. some degree of control. And even if the regulations are burdensome, if you're Goldman Sachs, you can afford to hire the armies of lawyers. If you're a little small town bank, you probably can't. Well, absolutely. And you hear that from the community banks. I mean, I've talked to a lot of community bankers that rightfully say we are being so hurt by this regulation. And actually, you know, I'm a liberal, but I'm a little different, actually, than most liberals in the sense that I don't think in the financial sector that tons and tons of complicated regulation is actually going to get us to a better place. In some ways, I think that you have to flip things and make them much simpler. But before we get to solutions, a personal question. Yeah. When did you realize that you had to write this book? When did you get fired up? Oh, gosh. There was a particular come-to-Jesus moment um, in 2013. I was actually sitting in an off-the-record meeting with a former Obama administration official who'd been very intimately involved in the bailouts. And um, he was talking about the Dodd-Frank regulation, actually. And it was a room full of financial journalists. And someone asked whether or not he thought the banks had unduly influenced the process. And he said, no, no, no. We got done what we needed to get done. It's going to be great. System safer. Tie a bow on everything. You know, nothing to see here, folks. And... I had just done a column, actually, for Time magazine um, showing that 93% of all the consultation meetings on some of the most contentious parts of Dodd-Frank had been taken with the banking industry itself. So I raised my hand and said, how can you actually say that you have achieved the best result when 93% of the meetings are being taken with the people being regulated? And he looked at me with real befuddlement and said, well, who else should we have been talking to? And that was just an amazing moment because I thought, wow, there is so much cognitive capture here that this regulator, well-meaning though he might be, can't even see that there might have been a broader group of people in the room that would have valid opinions about what the financial system should look like. And I thought, this is a book. So nearly everybody who was spoken to was in the financial industry. Yeah. Who should those regulators and those framers of Dodd-Frank been talking to? It's funny because a lot of people ask me that and they say, well, look, if you're going to build a bridge, you want to have a lot of civil engineers around. If you're going to reform finance, you do want to have some financiers in the room, but you also want to have, I would argue, people that are using the financial system. This is a two-sided thing. I think that there should have been a lot more corporate leaders from a broader range of industries. I think there should have been more meetings with consumer advocates, with academics that actually study the financial system and the history of financial crises, a lot of those people were simply not taken seriously, not given the airtime, or shut out of meetings. And what about community bankers, little banks? Were, Ab- they, were they consulted? Well, absolutely. But no, they were not consulted nearly as frequently as the big banks because they don't have the lobbying muscle. And this gets back to the money politics, which is a problem not just in finance, but in so many areas of the and economy. And isn't, isn't the revolving door uh, a big part of this? I mean, everybody who works at the Treasury Department you know, if they do their jobs right, after a few years, they go work for Goldman Sachs. Government uh, Sachs. No, it's true. I mean, you know, I actually tallied up uh, the number of Treasury secretaries that have been associated with Goldman Sachs, and it's, um, I believe it was 11 or 12 in the book. I mean, more than in any other institution, certainly. I think that that's all part of this cognitive capture problem. You've got the regulators all coming out of the same place. You need more of a diversity of thought here. 
cognitive capture. I love this term. <laughs> it's a little as, wonky, as, I know. Long term, yeah, we're, we're a little wonky. As long term <laughs> listeners of our podcast, now I'm writing a book about disasters, and what you see again and again is people in management positions, whether they're on the Titanic yeah. or the you know Deepwater Horizon oil platform, they have a really hard time seeing the risks that are literally right under their feet, and mm-hmm. um, and there, it is kind of like cognitive capture, well, like groupthink. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of brainwashing. I mean, it's the idea that you know. Um, when you work in a specific industry, be it retail or medicine or, or finance, you know, you have a hammer and everything starts to look like a nail, right? You know, you need to break out of your silo. That's why it's so important to get people that are coming at this from a totally different perspective. Community bankers, um, individual borrowers, academics that study different parts of the economy and maybe look at how finance affects those parts of the economy, rather than just having a bunch of people that sit in Wall Street, in a very uh, rarefied part of the economy, and make all the decisions. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. So where do we start? Um, one solution, limiting leverage. Yep. Um, in other words, uh, increasing the amount of money banks must have to keep them stable. Um, I thought that was already happening. Well, it is. You know, there have been very complicated uh, conversations It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST stations which you may or may not have followed and if you have followed them it may have put you to sleep <laughs> about <laughs> about things like tier one capital and cash equivalents and the problem in other words is, just to be really clear yeah when we talk about leverage we talk about reserve what used to be called reserve requirements i don't know if they still are that's right uh, or, or cash the, in the bank so yeah. if you're it's talk- the amount of money the bank keeps in its vaults that's and right. it doesn't loan out so if something goes bad they've got that to fall back on. that's right so just to give you an example um that's actually quite telling these days banks can do their daily business with 95% debt. They only need to keep about 5% cash in reserve. That's a very, very low amount by historical standards. If you look look back actually to the Great Depression, most of the big New York banks at that time were holding 20% cash reserves. So it just shows you how far we've come. So while I'm definitely in favor of banks keeping more cash on hand, at least 15 20% I think would be a great number, which is much higher than what's being talked about right now. I also think that we need to fundamentally change how we think about the way banks do business. We need to get back to this idea that banks are a help meet to other kinds of businesses. And whatever else they're doing that doesn't have something to do with that, they need to stop doing. (laughs) Is it simply going back to Glass-Steagall, which was the act that separated commercial banking from traditional 
lending. Yeah, I definitely think a, a modernized version of Glass-Steagall would be a good thing. That separated, as you say, the plain vanilla, it's a wonderful life kind of lending from the complicated trading that Michael Lewis writes about that blows up Although if you actually watch that movie, you see they violated about 17 laws. <laughs> in, in, oh, come on. <laughs> Though their hearts were in the right place. I know, that's exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think we need to have a real sort of root-to-branch rethink of how the financial system works. And what I would do is start by kind of flipping this pyramid that I was talking about earlier, where finance sits at the top of the economy and everything else is underneath. Flip it and say, finance is there to serve business. It is there to just be a help me to business. We need to simplify it. Um, we need to say, what kinds of activities in our economy do we want to incentivize? And then create the rules around finance to help capital flow to those areas. Um, one thing that that might involve is rethinking the tax code. Our tax code does a lot of subsidizing of very unproductive kinds of debt. I mean, you know, I'll be honest, I live in a larger house than I probably could if I didn't have the mortgage interest deduction. Yeah, um, I, I have two mortgages on, yeah. on two different properties. Why is there a deduction for the second property? Exactly. And why do relatively affluent people like us get to take this deduction. I mean, that's something that flows directly to the middle and upper classes. And the corporate code is filled with even more diabolical exemptions for everything from corporate jets to all kinds of uh, leverage that ends up creating the kind of financial crises that, you know, that rocked us in 2008. You talked about all the companies that are holding a lot of their cash offshore. Is it the high corporate tax rate that we have in the U.S. relative to most other developed countries part of that? Yeah, I think that we certainly could lower the baseline tax rate in the U.S., but our problem is more about loopholes. You've got to close the loopholes. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a place where the rich are getting richer and you don't have real growth on Main Street. Yeah, let's look at solutions. One thing that's really struck me as interesting is this idea, and I've really simplified it, that banking needs an independent safety board in the same way that the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, goes in and investigates um, an, an airline accident or a fatal, a large fatal accident on the roads or rails. It's interesting because after um, that agency came into effect in the transportation industry, the number of crashes, the the way in which the safety standards improved, it was really exponential. And I think that we should definitely have something like that for the financial industry. I mean, it's it's just as important for people's health and well-being in many ways. Now, but, the NTSB is what, an independent, relatively right. independent agency that, that is that – is to some extent, free of, of industry influence? Yeah, that's, that's right. It sits outside. It has um, separate leadership. And there is a potential model for this already existing. The Office of Financial Research, which sits within the Treasury Department, could be made more independent. I think it should probably be split off from Treasury. It should have resources. I think that having them go in and really do some forensic deep dives into not only the causes of crises, but the contagion effect would be really, really helpful. You talked a little bit before about that we reward relatively short-term planning, and we saw it in the Apple case, actually. You know, yeah. a lot of the moves they're making are really good for the stock price short-term, but at the same time, they're whittling down the amount of money they spend on R&D with the, the essence of the company. Yeah. So what are some examples of how we could change the regulatory structure to encourage more long-term 
thinking yep. on, on the part of our corporate leaders. Um, it's true that as finance has risen since the 1980s, the percentage of R&D by revenue being spent by almost all Fortune 500 companies has gone down, per capita startups have gone down. So you've got this decrease in the sort of good part of the capitalist society and an increase in the sort of reductive part of it. I think what we should do is go back to the 1982 rule that actually made stock buybacks legal. Prior to that, they were considered market manipulation. And I think... For for, for listeners who don't quite yeah. understand what a stock buyback is, yep. could you just walk us through that? Absolutely. So, you know, companies issue stock and they have a certain amount of shares outstanding on the market. Companies can go in and buy back those shares on the open market, which, of course, if you think about the laws of supply and demand, artificially raises the stock price. I think that tech companies in general have a tremendous opportunity right now to put some of that spare cash to work, investing in things like the green economy, uh, uh, new energy alternatives. I mean, there's just a lot of things that you could invest in right now that would be a lot more productive than buybacks. Another thing you talk about in terms of solutions is limiting offshore banking. How would that work? Well, offshore banks are a great way for corporations and rich individuals to stash cash. You know, we saw that with the Panama Papers. And I think that we've seen, I mean, this election cycle has just proven to us how uh, incredibly toxic this idea is that companies and rich individuals can fly sort of 35,000 feet above the problems of individual nation states. I think we should make rules around offshore banking much tougher. What do you say to the argument that the ability for money and talent to flow around the world is the heart of making our world better connected, more prosperous, uh, and promoting growth all over the world? Well, I think that the debate about how capitalism should function has been focused on sort of two paradigms. One is this free-for-all globalization where you can – stuff can go anywhere, jobs, goods, capital can go anywhere – And another is the sort of 1930s paradigm of just gridlock, um, protectionism, Great Depression. And we think that there's nothing. Protect what you have. Protect what you have. It's a zero-sum game. Tariffs and trade barriers. And that's something that people are worried about right now. You know, with Trump, he's had mouthed off a lot about that. Um, But I think that there's something in between. I think that there could be a new kind of globalization that has a more regional focus. And indeed, you actually already see certain companies starting to take action around that. Final question. And it goes right to the heart of your argument, which is empowering makers over takers. Yeah. Well, if you just step back for a minute and think about how imbalanced the economy has become, the corporate share of the pie, and when I talk about corporations, I'm mostly talking about big multinationals. The corporate share of the pie is as large as it's ever been. The labor share of the pie, what workers take home, is as low as it's been in the post-war period. In an economy like ours in the U.S. that is 70% consumer spending, the math doesn't work if you keep going along that road for very long. If people don't have more money in their pockets, eventually growth stalls. Rana Faruhar, we'd love to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. Okay. All right, this is fantastic. Boy, there's so much we could go into. I know. So much more depth. Really, so, really You guys great. are great. But You're so tough. like, that was such a nuanced conversation. Two words that Rana Faruhar said, which I know lit up both of us, cognitive capture and the idea that people are in bubbles. It's that whole thing again. I mean, it's the bubble problem with voters. It's the bubble problem in business as well. And, and with, people, now with regulators. And 
and with regulators. People only seek out opinions that are comfortable to them rather than having a true diversity of opinion and inviting a much broader group of people to the table. Right. But, Richard, you know, since I'm the squishy libertarian on the team, I would make the point that this is a really good argument against the idea that we can regulate our way out of all these problems. People constantly think, like, we'll just have more regulations. No matter how good the people are you bring in, you still get this cognitive capture problem. A more diverse group is going to help, but so will, I thought one of the key things she said was, sometimes the answer is less regulation. You know, when you regulate a field really, really tightly, you also, to some degree, absolve the people from risks. I wouldn't put it in a sense that we need less regulation. I think we need simpler regulation so that there are a sense of principles and guidelines rather than a regulation for every single eventuality. I, I, I think we're in agreement on this, but I think there's this tendency to try to regulate every little detail. And what happens is when people are regulated that tightly, they kind of give up a sense of responsibility. And who really suffers? And we might say, well, who cares? They're a bunch of bankers. Who suffers in the end is the people trying to start businesses and everybody else in the economy where the money's not flowing to, to regular business people who want to take a chance and, and grow some business. One more thing before we get out of here. I think it's important for the tax system to encourage long-term rather than short-term thinking. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, you know, how you do it is tricky. Where I'm not sure I'm in agreement is the, is the critique of the kind of neoliberal idea that when possible, relatively free flows of capital are a positive for, for the world economy. I, I, I do think those are a good thing. We're seeing a populist backlash against that. But, but I think that overall, you know, it's not just that it's helped a few people. I mean, if you look at the last 30 years during this era, this era world poverty has dropped dramatically. Poverty in Africa and Southeast Asia. So before we shut this system down, because we people in the, at the rich end of the world have seen a few problems, let's be sure we're not shutting off the ability for capital and good ideas to move around the world where they can really help people. But one of the most provocative and interesting things about the book and about what Rana Faruhar just talk to us about is the title, Makers and Takers, that we really need to have a whole debate and look very carefully at whether the financial industry is too big for the good of the economy and there's too much emphasis on finance, too little on making stuff on regular Main Street business. Okay, Jim, it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And uh, our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And the music's by Lou Stravinsky. We're produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits, even banks. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.